2: We're here to have
1: fun, smart conversations with some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining people in politics, media, and beyond.
0: Our goal is to try and make sense of our current crazy world, our new abnormal, and hopefully even make you laugh through the tears.
1: Hello and welcome to another Sunday bonus episode of The New Abnormal, and we thank you so much for being here. Last month, it was announced that Jimmy Carter, the 39th president of the United States, had decided to spend his remaining time with his family in Plains, Georgia, to receive hospice care at the age of 98. Joining us today is Jonathan Alter, the author of of his very best, Jimmy Carter, a life, to tell us all about the former president. But first,
2: let's have some fun. Are you guys ready to listen to some clips? Hell yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we all hear about the supposed safe spaces us Democrats need. But triggered snowflake, Ron High Heels DeSantis, (laughs) is trying to not let people wearing Trump merch in his book events or uh, safe space, fearing their wrath. So let's listen to the security guard deal with Trump fans. (laughs) Because of what you're wearing?
3: Because they told me to say anybody wearing Trump has to go right now. Oh! Free no, no, During During speech! thing. speech! Free yes, uh, okay. speech! Free speech! Free Free speech! Free speech! Free
4: speech! Free
1: speech! Free speech! Free speech! Free speech! Free speech! All right. Okay. Free speech! <laughs> okay, okay, Free speech! Free speech! I understand the impulse of not (laughs) wanting to be around people wearing Trump gear. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. So I get it. But yeah, that's pretty funny.
0: Like, (laughs) first of all, Mr. High Heel White Boots, it is really something. Their projection of their masculinity, right? They're so fucking tough. Talk so tough, but Ron DeSantis, who is turning Florida into an entire fascist state, can't bear, he has to cover his little delicate eyes from seeing anything that says Trump on it. Like this is the same man who basically you owe your entire fascist fucking playbook and career to is Donald Trump and now, oh my goodness, it hurts my eyes. I just, my ego can't take it. These are the same motherfuckers you're trying to court. These are your same constituents that you're trying to court. So I'm just like, it's so fucking dumb. And it just show, it just shows you how weak they are. And again, if I'm a Democrat, I'm going after your weakness. Because everything that they do is about projection. Everything.
1: I do want to say, though, that it's fairly obvious at this point that DeSantis has a fetish for banning things. And I'm mm-hmm. not sure we should be kink-shaming on this show. <laughs> So, you know, I I think we should, uh, we need to be a little more open-minded here, and let's just accept that he seems to get some kind of, look, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but he does seem to get some kind of sexual thrill from banning shit. Mm. I think we should be very careful about what we say about him, because I do think it it straddles, no pun intended, the the realm of of kink shaming.
0: (laughs) <laughs> I think I think you meant the pun. <laughs> oh, man.
2: <laughs> Next. <laughs> so, the Daily Wire, which for those of you unfamiliar, is most known for one bench Shapiro. It's an outlet filled with a bunch of sickos who have beliefs almost no one in the country shares. But since they bought their ratings higher... They seem relevant. And normally I wouldn't want us to signal boost these freaks, but you have to hear what the right wing is coming for next, because these guys are unfortunately influential on the people who staff right wing officials offices who help make policy.
4: And no one is doubting that your child is great and that you having a child is a great thing, but good ends do not justify immoral means. We're not Machiavellians here. We're not utilitarians here. We're not consequentialists here. We're conservatives. We believe that, that, The morality of actions depends upon the action itself. And in this case, the way that Paris Hilton has done it really shows you how morally problematic IVF is, because Paris Hilton now has 20 children. I don't think she has any children that have been born, but she has 20 frozen embryos. Why does she have 20? Why has she so irresponsibly created 20 unique human beings and then just shoved them all in a freezer? Well, because she keeps getting boys, and she doesn't want boys. She wants girls. So she's just going to keep trying IVF. She's got unlimited money. So she's just going to engage in IVF until she gets a girl. And the doctors, I think, are more than happy to do it. It's a very expensive process. Doctors are more than happy to trans the kids. It's a very expensive process. The doctors are more than happy to engage in IVF. It'll make them a lot of money. So who knows? Maybe Paris will get 25 of her sons frozen forever, or 30, or 35, until she gets a girl. She says she's waiting for that girl. Now, Obviously, if it were reversed and you saw someone say, "Yeah, I'm putting all the girls in a freezer until I get a boy. I really want a boy," you'd have the fem- feminists screaming and crying and say, "This is sexist and terrible and eugenics." And but but because it's a boy and boys are are castigated by the culture that they don't want to say that. Because boys are toxic, you know, the masculinity is evil and toxic. We have to get rid of it. That is really evil stuff. Yeah.
0: So here's the thing. For people with uteruses. And folks have been saying this for quite some time. These motherfuckers are not stopping at abortion. They're not going to be happy until one, birth control pills are gone, and that the only way that you can conceive of having a child is through their wondrous world of rape, because they also don't want to outlaw that from happening, right? Like it used to be in the case of a mother and all of these things, but they, are coming for IVF. They're coming for every which way that people are able to form the families that they want. So now for those that want babies, they don't want them to have them in the way that you want to have them or can have them. So the audacity that you're going to go after people who are so want a child, so want to expand their family, to go through a brutal, at times, fertility process in order to make that happen, now you want to come and rob people of that option? Trust me when I say that they continue to step their foot just further and further across the line, you are going to piss off the wrong people and those that are wealthy and influential at that. And that is something that the right is not ready for, and I cannot fucking wait for it to come.
1: I have to express some ignorance here. I did not realize that in vitro fertilization was any kind of political issue. (laughs) And that's always the thing is that they'll go one step further the second you give them an inch. I mean, again, maybe I'm just ignorant. I've never heard anyone come out and say that in 2023 anyway, come out and say that IVF is immoral?
0: Because they think it's unnatural. It wasn't God's way. Neither were their limp dicks, but you don't see them trying to ban a Viagra. <laughs>
1: no, That's a, a fair point. Uh, yeah, I mean, IVF is not mentioned in the Bible, but neither is Cialis. So, this is Michael Knowles, and, you know, he has a lot of fucked up views, so I guess I'm mad at myself for being surprised at this, because as, as you both said, like, you know, yes, we've all known that whatever they say at the beginning is not their end game and their end game is, is always you know 10 20 30 steps Further I just never (laughs) expected Ivy IVF is God I know so many couples That could not conceive And as you said Daniel went through this Hellish process and by the way Expensive as fuck process
2: Yeah so expensive
1: because they Wanted a child so badly Man these people talk about In the same breath they talk about Not wanting to be replaced and how white People have to have more babies
0: And here's a rich white baby that was just Born do you think they would have thrown her a fuck parade.
1: That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like this should be what they want. It's just, wow. I, well thankfully this is probably the dumbest thing we'll hear from the Daily
2: Wire today. Uh, mm-hmm. Andy. I mean, I just, just want to follow up though that I, I don't know if you guys have seen that meme where uh, it's Jesus standing over the surgeon who's taking out a tumor and he says, where do you do it? I put that there. Yeah. and oh, that, That's shit. really what, where I think we're going yeah. here. Uh, okay, but I do have very bad news the ridiculousness doesn't end. So this demented man, Michael Knowles, is now going right with his other Daily Wire, another host they have, Matt Walsh, who's podcast's foremost person who literally won't use a public restroom because he's so scared of transgender people being in it, which makes me really feel bad for the census family endures when they're out shopping. (laughs) But now they want to ban transgender people as well.
4: In order for women to have the right to have their own bathrooms, you have to ban transgenderism entirely. You can't just ban it for the kids. It's got to be entirely in order for women to be able to have their own locker rooms at the gym. You have to ban transgenderism entirely in order to protect businesses from having to participate in weird occult sexual rituals like the transgender transition. You have to ban transgenderism entirely. I love this bill because it is so much more aggressive than the other bills we've seen. The other—I don't mean to knock the other governors and the other state houses. They've done a great job laying the groundwork, the groundwork rather. But this bill goes much further, and it reminds us of a truth in politics that Republicans all too often forget: You're either on offense or you're on defense. You're either making gains in the culture or you're losing ground in the culture. There's no standing still, there's no status quo, there's no neutrality. And what the conservatives have screwed up on for at least 50 years now, probably more, is the libs make some crazy aggressive play, and then we try to dial it back by about five to 10%. Or worse, we try to slow it down by about five to 10%. So, So the libs attack the family through feminism, the fundamental political institution. They claim that men and women are basically the same. That takes the culture pretty far to the left, and then conservatives try to mm, they try to inch it back a little bit, but not by the, by the time they're even thinking about inching it back, the libs push forward with the normalization of other sexual practices, gay rights, among other things. And then, oop, by the time the conservatives are trying to dial that back, the libs, have, they've lurched much further to the left. They're trying to redefine marriage now. They say, redefine marriage? Well, I don't know. I guess we could come to some kind of terms with a civil union, and by the time you say that, whoop, they've lurched even further to the left now. They're saying, actually, we've got transgenderism. Actually, now a man can become a woman. A man can become a woman. Okay, but but maybe we shouldn't do it to my. By the time we say that, whoop! Oh my gosh, we're now we're all the way off the screen, because now they're trying to trans the kids. And there are many conservatives now who are saying, look, if you want, if you're a man and you want to put on a dress, that's fine. But just don't do it to children. Just don't make me pay for it. No, the the only way, even to stop there, even if all you want to do is stop where we are right now, the only way to do that is to. Push so aggressively in the other direction that you're trying to take back ground that we ceded years ago, decades ago. Kansas absolutely leading the way. Love it.
2: Yet again, you know, when we say that the end game is, is never what they first aggress on. Here's more proof. Yeah, and we all knew this.
1: I mean, we all knew, look, everything, anytime it's about the kids, that is a cover for where they actually want to go. It's never about the kids. This, I mean, this is a clear example of it, but- Yeah. They want to ban, quote unquote, transgenderism. And they always have. All these people who, you know, are constantly referring to the left as snowflakes and all this stuff. They are scared of their own fucking shadows. (laughs) Anything that, you know, makes them even the slightest bit uncomfortable, which, by the way, they shouldn't be in the first place. But anything that makes them even the slightest bit uncomfortable, they immediately leap to, we have to ban that. We have to make that illegal. That can't be allowed. And it's just, I mean, these are the most fragile people possibly in the history of the planet. And they just cannot bear to think of a country that is not like it was in the 1950s or the 1850s or the late 1700s or whatever time they want to pick. Fuck, half of them seem to You know, I think they would have been most comfortable in like the 1300s. It is absolutely unbelievable how fucking fragile these people are. But yeah, see this, unlike the IVF thing, this is not a surprise. And this is exactly what they've wanted from the beginning. And that was very, very clear. And they, I guess, sort of politically smartly tried to make it an issue about kids. But it was never that. And it has always been this.
0: Here's what I'm going to say. The reason why trans people are so fucking vital, right, to the Republicans' crusade against uh, wokeness, the crusade against, you know, LGBTQ plus people is because transgender people refuse to live a lie, right? They refuse and have the courage not to fucking conform Right, to the way that society has told them that they should be, right? When you see a bold, ferocious, amazing trans person living in their truth, doing nothing other than that, that in and of itself is an affront right? It is an affront to patriarchy. It is an affront to white supremacy. It is an affront to the lies that they have been filling our heads with since we come out of the fucking womb and they put a blue or a pink hat on us. And so what has happened in our country is that people- for Republicans, right? And their level of comfort have become too free, that people recognize that gender is a fucking construct, that we don't live inside of a binary and that it's a part of a larger capitalistic patriarchy scheme to keep control over people. And so what do you do when people start to become more free? You ban their right to bodily autonomy. You begin to ban their ability to tell you who they are as opposed to who you want them to be. That's what they are doing and that's why people need to fucking connect the dots and not get sidetracked by these conversations about drag queens and fucking M&Ms and all of this bullshit because at the end of the day it is about control. And what trans people represent and what queer people represent and black people represent and people of color represent are people that have decided and choose and fight for their ability to have autonomy against a system that was built to oppress them. So Fuck all of them, honestly, because I they, they don't have remotely as much power, backbone and strength as trans people have in their fucking pinkies.
1: Uh, amen to that. You know, you do have to feel a little bad for them. They're still adjusting to the fact that women are allowed in the workplace. Not for long. <laughs> so all of these other things just make it more difficult. I want to say one more thing, because we hear a lot these days about how conservatism is the new punk rock. I see that quote. <laughs> everywhere and it just it is amazing to me that the same people who think that they're the new punk rock are the same people who want to do things like ban transgender people from existing and also like these are the people by the way who say that conservatism is, is the new punk rock while they're on their book tours at places like the villages so <laughs> maybe figure out what the fuck you're saying and how stupid you sound and no you're not the new punk rock it's just shut the fuck up
2: okay While this podcast usually sticks to national politics, I have to point out when our absolute moron of a mayor, Eric Adams, says something this dumb and proves to all the people who said he wasn't a Democrat, that he actually is a Republican. Well, he's ruled like one. He talks like a Republican. He used to be formally registered like one. And now let's listen to him talk exactly like one. If
4: we are bringing our best fight in the ring, we would not have homeless in this city. We would not have a crisis of domestic violence. We would not have children, because when we took prayers out of schools, guns came into schools.
2: It's a hard one to respond to, because it's so... bad. Mm.
1: There were a lot of bad quotes in that whole thing. One of them involved, I don't remember if it was his press secretary or one of his people saying that Mayor Adams was sort of one of the elect, as in, you know, chosen by God. Mm. I do want to point out that this is the guy who not that long ago, Democrats were inviting to speak to them about the future of the party and how to move the party forward. And... I remember at the time being like, what the fuck are you doing? And now I, with the benefit of, you know, all of this, I can amend that to what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) This, This is, this is whatever. He sucks God he sucks I missed de Blasio I never in my life Thought I would say that Right there with you
0: Yeah <laughs> I don't know Who thought That putting a former cop Yeah A man that was a Republican Until I think Roughly the beginning Of the 2000s And then switched To becoming a Democrat Into being mayor Was a good fucking idea But I'm pretty sure That we had separation Of church and state For a fucking reason I'm pretty sure that, let's see, shootings, school shootings didn't start (laughs) happening after prayer was removed from schools. I'm pretty sure that happened after, you know, we let the ban on assault rifles kind of fade into the sunset and then decided to do nothing about that. So when they equate, oh, it's God that's gonna stop a motherfucking bullet as opposed to legislation, then you, sir, should probably go maybe to seminary and get the fuck (laughs) out of office and go someplace and pray about it as opposed to putting policy agenda together about it, which you're not doing a very good job of. I mean, maybe he'll be a one-term mayor. That seems to be trending.
2: God, that would be nice.
0: So who knows?
2: Daniel, I have bad news for you because sometimes people are like, oh, well, maybe he misspoke a little. He said in retort to you. Don't tell me about no separation of church and state. State is the body. Church is the heart. You take the heart out of the body, the body dies.
0: You know what also happens? If you take the brain out of the body, (laughs) the body
2: dies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a perfect end, but I want to do one last thing. We haven't heard from uh, Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana in a minute, but he spoke at CPAC, and he had some wise words that I think we'd actually agree with, with him for once.
1: What else is the truth? The truth is that God is great,
3: beer is good, and and the United States
0: of America is star-spangled awesome.
2: Hell yeah, brother.
0: What are we agreeing with here? I don't drink beer.
2: <laughs> no. Beer's good.
0: Be- okay, I'll take your word for it.
1: University of Virginia Law School graduate.
0: BetterHelp.
1: Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash the new abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash the new abnormal. By just about all political metrics, Jimmy Carter had a failed presidency. He was a one-termer. The U.S. economy was in the tank. There was the Iran hostage crisis, the failed rescue attempt. He had a rare for a sitting president serious primary challenge in 1980 from Ted Kennedy, and he lost the general election in a landslide to Ronald Reagan, who ushered in an entire era dedicated to principles that were fairly diametrically opposed to his. But what he didn't have by any metrics was a failed life. Joining me now is the author of the 2020 book, His Very Best, Jimmy Carter Alive, and MSNBC political analyst, Jonathan Alter. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So in my intro, I said that by political metrics, Carter had a failed presidency. But in your book and numerous other places, you have made a very compelling argument that he actually had a lot of substantive presidential successes and that we do both him and history a disservice by constantly referring to him as a quote unquote failed president. Talk about this because even today I don't think that's the general perception among Americans.
3: You're right, the general perception is bad president, great former president and I think that's, you know, horribly oversimplified and in some ways is just wrong. I think his presidency was undervalued, uh, underrated and his post presidency while inspiring and full of achievement and you know set a new standard for former presidents is a tad overrated in part because when you're a former president you don't actually have any real power to change lives in the same way that you do as president so while he you know prevented conflict in 1994 in North Korea and Haiti as a former president and he has nearly eradicated Guinea worm disease and made great progress against river blindness. Uh, If you set those achievements against what he accomplished as president, they're relatively minor. So just to start, if if you'll indulge me on some of the overlooked accomplishments as president. So he got more legislation approved than any president since World War II, except for Lyndon Johnson you go, how could that be? I mean, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan, they served two terms. Carter only served one term. But Carter had a Democratic Congress for four years, and Obama and Clinton only had one for two. And even though he had some problems with Congress, and they didn't like him very much personally, he had overwhelming majorities. And so was putting points on the board all the time. Fifteen major pieces of environmental legislation, for instance, you know, which includes the first funding for green energy, a bill to clean up toxic waste dumps that now cleaned up thousands of them in the years since, the first fuel economy standards for automobiles, doubling of the size of the national park system with acquisition of millions and millions of acres in Alaska and also in other places. And, you know, I could go on on the environmental side, legislation to allow for the first time public utilities to use clean energy, incentivizing them to do so. And then, you know, the first civil service reform in a hundred years, right? establishments of the departments of energy, education, and FEMA. So the beginning of emergency management, coordination in education legislation. I could go on and I don't want to get too down into the weeds on policy, but do want to like turn briefly to foreign policy. So people associate him, as you said, with the failed Iran hostage rescue mission. Hostages were held through the election and right up until Reagan's inauguration. And that humiliated Jimmy Carter. And since he was mm-hmm. held hostage, but they came home safely. You know, that story ended, well, if he had bombed Iran, as a lot of people were urging him to do, including his own mother, you know, he probably would have been reelected, but the hostages would have been killed. And then elsewhere in foreign policy, you have the Camp David Accords, which, you know, are the most successful peace treaties since World War II. Israel and Egypt have not fired a shot in anger in the 40 plus years since, and they had fought four wars just prior to that. So, you know, people think that Jimmy Carter is, uh, you know, a pro-Palestinian president, and that is true. He was the first one to call for a Palestinian state, but he also was the greatest president for the security of Israel since Harry Truman, because he took the Egyptian army, which is the only army capable of destroying Israel, off the table. The recognition of China, normalization of relations, this was a huge thing in the establishment of the global economy. So Gerald Ford, if he had won in 76, would not have recognized China. Carter did so when Deng Xiaoping went back. The first thing he did was legalize private property, which kicked off the greatest economic boom in human history. And the bilateral relationship between the United States and China for all of our current problems is the foundation of our global economy. The Panama Canal Treaties, long forgotten, where we turned over control of the canal to Panama, hugely unpopular in the United States. Ronald Reagan was against it. Two thirds of the public was against it. It required two thirds to ratify in the Senate. And Carter, it was really hard. It really hurt him and senators politically, but they got it done. And according to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, it prevented an open-ended Vietnam War in our own backyard in Panama. And we would have had to put a minimum of 100,000 troops in to secure the canal. And meanwhile, it created great goodwill throughout Latin America, which helped lead to a democratic transformation of the Southern Hemisphere, you know, where many countries went from autocracy to democracy. They also did so because of Carter's human rights policy, which, you know, I think he considers to be one of his greatest achievements, even though it was unevenly applied. But um, this set of whole new global standard for how governments should treat their people. And it helped lead to the end of the Cold War and also to freedom for uh, lots of political prisoners around the world, many of whom, like Václav Havel and Kim Dae-chung in uh, South Korea, went on to become presidents of their country and credited Jimmy Carter with their lives and their ability to help restore their societies. I know it's kind of hard to believe. Uh, I've been rambling on, but I've actually just scratched the surface of his achievements in those years. We didn't talk about deregulation of airlines, which allowed people to visit relatives who otherwise wouldn't have been able to because of high airfares, trucking deregulation, which basically allowed for the establishment of the just-in-time delivery service, which is a system which is now you know at the root of FedEx and everything else. And, you know, all sorts of minor things like deregulating the beer industry so that we can have craft breweries. So the list goes on.
1: And Billy Beer.
3: Billy Beer, we haven't even talked about. So Billy <laughs> caused his brother a lot of trouble. Yes. Yeah. Billy was an alcoholic. So he would pour the contents of his own beer into the toilet and fill the beer can with vodka before he would go out and make <laughs> a public appearance. Billy Beer was... uh It didn't taste so good. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember as a as a kid, I had an empty can of Billy beer in my room that I guess my parents must have bought and my, neither of my parents were drinkers and definitely not beer drinkers, but obviously they bought it as like a souvenir of the times and gave me the empty can and I just remember seeing that can every day of my childhood in my
3: bedroom. <laughs> well, I have a couple in my in my house. <laughs> so Billy Billy was really funny, especially in the 76 campaign he got off A number of good lines before, you know, his problems started to consume him when his brother was president. But Jimmy Carter started zero percent in the polls. And when he told people he was running for president as a former governor, the Atlanta Constitution ran a headline Jimmy Carter is running for president of what? (laughs) You know, and his brother Billy told reporters, he said, I got one sister who's, uh, a holy roller. I got a mother who joined the Peace Corps when she was in her late 60s. I got another sister who rides with the Hell's Angels. And my brother thinks he's going to be president of the United States. I'm the only normal one in the whole family. (laughs) (laughs) And that gives you a sense of how you know, colorful Carter's family was.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
3: I feel like I got too far into the sheep dip of his presidency. And he mentioned early on that, you know, while he was a loser politically, you know, he won at life. He led a just an extraordinarily rich, epic American life, only 12 years of which was in public office.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, do you think at least some of the sort of this conventional wisdom that he was a failed president, is that a product of his personality? Because he was kind of like, in a sense, he was kind of like the anti-Reagan, wasn't he, personality wise? Yeah. He could be a little cold, he could be a little aloof, he was maybe too honest with the American people about certain things?
3: Yeah, he was definitely too honest (laughs) about a number of things. I mean, he even told them when he was suffering from hemorrhoids, which was TMI. (laughs) And there was, he could be a little bit odd sometimes. And you're right, he could be prickly, aloof, was not popular in Washington, was not particularly popular with the press. And so all of this contributed to that. The main thing I think is that, look, he was made president by Watergate because he came along, he said, I won't lie to you. He didn't, basically. Uh, He exaggerated sometimes, but he didn't lie. And, you know, we need a government as good as its people. And it was the perfect post-Watergate message. And the press ate it up in 1976. But then the post-Watergate press also undid him because every flap, like we talked about his brother, you know, his brother became a lobbyist for Libya, you know. Jimmy himself wasn't at all implicated. But that scandal was called Gate. Every flap, and there were dozens of them, they would attach gate afterward to it, the press would. And so, you know, they assumed that he was, must be crooked like Nixon, you know, and they tried to bring down a president. So, and he just wasn't as charming as Reagan. And so the contrast with Reagan was really, really strong. I think the other thing that happens is that journalists judge politicians by how they're doing politically. Historians need to judge political figures by how they change the country. So these are just, you know, two different lenses to look at our politicians through. And and so I just concluded that he was a political failure, but a a farsighted success. And we haven't even talked about climate change and the other things where he was like just way ahead.
1: Well, I want to jump a little bit here. As you pointed out earlier, we talk a lot about his post-presidential period and we focus on things like his work with Habitat for Humanity and the building of houses. I think that's sort of the iconic image we have of Jimmy Carter now is him building a house. And things like that were legitimately fantastic. I'm I'm not downplaying them. But I want to ask you about something that happened Happened more recently, he put out a statement after George Floyd's death and the protests that followed. And in that statement, he said that since leaving the White House, he and his wife, Rosalind, had seen that, quote, Silence can be as deadly as violence. And he went on to say, People of power, privilege, and moral conscience must stand up and say no more to a racially discriminatory police and justice system, immoral economic disparities between whites and blacks, and government actions that undermine our unified democracy. We are responsible for creating a world of peace and equality for ourselves and future generations." I mean, my God, what a statement from a former president.
3: So there's so much that's interesting about that. First, just very briefly on Habitat for Humanity. I worked with Jimmy and Rosalind building a house in Memphis in 2016. And my hat's off to what they did for Habitat. Once a year, they would go all over the world and spend a week building a house. But in truth, he never ran Habitat for Humanity. He was chair of the board for a while, but right. you know, his main thing as a former president is the Carter Center. Yes. So I think people assume that Habitat is his organization, and it's not. But it, nonetheless, he did a lot to put it on the map. He took a bus as a former president. He took a bus all the way to New York for their first, an overnight bus. Can you imagine a former president doing yeah. another, another former <laughs> no.
0: president
3: to build a... Uh, rehab a building on the um, Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it was on the front page of the New York Times the next day. And that put Habitat on the map. And it's now the largest builder of uh, nonprofit housing for the poor in the world. That was important. On race. So Jimmy Carter grew up in the Jim Crow South. His father was a white supremacist. His mother was enlightened on race up to a point, And she was a nurse who took care of black patients, sharecroppers for free when they were sick. And when he left home to go to the Naval Academy, he defended the first black midshipman at the Naval Academy. And then he defended his black crewmates um, uh, aboard submarine when they were discriminated against. And he quarreled with his father about his father's rancid racial views, which were all too typical of white southerners of that generation. But then when he got home in 1953, his father died and he came home, take up his civic activities and run his business and eventually go into politics. And through that period, after Brown versus Board of Education, when white terrorism surged in the South, Jimmy Carter ducked. And he was not a part of the civil rights movement because he was ambitious in politics. And as he told me at one point, he said, I could either be governor of Georgia or I could be an outspoken supporter of civil rights. And I decided to be governor of Georgia. And he actually pandered to segregationists to get there in 1970 when he was elected governor. Then on the day of his inauguration as governor of Georgia in 1971, he says, in his inaugural address, the time for racial discrimination is over. And all of the segregationists who had voted for him felt he was betraying them. And the Black voters in attendance watching, they were incredulous. They couldn't believe he had said this. And he went on to integrate Georgia state government, appoint Black judges, senior Black staff, hung Martin Luther King's portrait in the capital became very close to the King family. And, you know, eventually that led to this statement that you read. So this is a man who spent the second half of his life making up for what he right. did not do in the first half. So he knows firsthand that silence is violence because he was silent. Right. And the, the lesson of that, that he's trying to convey to people and that I discussed with him. And it's a very uncomfortable subject for him. But the lesson is, it's never too late. It's never too late to come to the side of racial justice. And he admitted grudgingly in my conversations with him, and I quote in the book, I quote, his kind of a grudging admission that he was late, late to his awareness of the extent of what was happening to Black Americans. So he he grew up steeped in this racist society and rejected it early on, never said, never quoted saying anything racist himself. Right. No evidence he ever used the N-word, but everybody in his family did, including his sainted mother, who was otherwise so enlightened. Right. So this is a very complex and really quite fascinating period of his life. He's from Plains, but the county seat of Sumter County is Americus. There was serious racial unrest, as it used to be called, in Americus in 1963 and 1965. Tom Brokaw made his reputation coming down from Atlanta, where he was a local reporter and covering it. And you had literally the sheriff, who Carter at the time was friendly with, and he made bull connor look like a nice guy martin luther king described him as the meanest man i ever met and this sheriff was using electrified cattle prods on 13 year old black girls so that's what we're talking about in this you know this era of white terrorism and carter is trying to negotiate all of this and still stay alive politically But then when he got the big jobs, he did the right thing. And I think there's a lesson in that, too.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. Jonathan, I wish I had five times as much time to talk to you, but unfortunately, we don't. I encourage our listeners, if they haven't read it already, to go out and get a copy of your excellent biography of jimmy carter his very best jimmy carter alive. jonathan alter thank you so much for being with us
3: thanks so much for having me on andy
0: hope you enjoyed checking out this episode of the new abnormal we're back every tuesday friday and sunday
1: if you enjoyed it please share it with a friend and keep the conversation going this podcast is a daily beast production with production by jesse cannon and seamus calder